Oh, Father, it is good to be together, to rejoice together, to reflect, to, to pray, to sing, now to open our Bibles and to receive from you. And so use this time, I pray, impact us, open our minds, make our hearts tender. It's easy for us to live distracted lives, Father. Help us to just be quietly reflective before you and sensitive to the leading of your Spirit for the preaching of the Word. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I ask you to grab your Bible and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews for a word of introduction from Hebrews. There are two verses in Hebrews chapter 4 that I want you to look at and I want you to kind of let it kick you in the head. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's easy to read things, to look at them and to just kind of let it slide by. These verses are not that unfamiliar to us. But I want you to just stop for a minute and think about the ramifications of these two verses. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Look at this. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, and we believe that. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow... And discerning, look at this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I'm not sure I understand completely everything the writer of Hebrews is communicating there about the power and authority of the word of God. I completely believe he's talking about the ability of the Word of God to pierce deep within our souls, to do a work deep inside of us. But when you read from verse 12 at the end that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and then 13 picks up and says, and no creature in all of creation is hidden from his sight, But all of us are as if we were naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account that the Word of God and God Himself together look deep inside our hearts and know exactly what's happening there. We need to just kind of stop a minute and say, "Uh uh-oh, this is pretty big stuff. That in the core of my being, you know, in our Bibles, it uses the word heart regularly to talk about the boiler room of the the command center of our lives. It's the core of our being. It's It's the place where our deepest decisions, our convictions, it's the combination of all that we are, the will, the personality... The the intellect and thinking thought processes of us come together here in the core of our being and make us who we really are. Not so much what people think we are, but what we are in the core of our being. The fabric of the substance of who we are. That's our heart. And it says that God looks right into our hearts. And that he discerns, along with the word of God, it discerns deep in our hearts, in the core of our being, exactly what's going on there. This can be illustrated from that familiar story 
back in 1 Samuel. Do you remember when Saul sinned and God told Samuel that I want to appoint a new king. He's going to be of the sons of Jesse. This is in 1 Samuel 16. You don't need to turn there. And so Samuel, who was God's prophet, goes to the area of Bethlehem. There's where Jesse had raised his boys. And one by one, those sons were passed by Samuel. There were seven of them. And all of them he rejected. And Samuel begins to have this like side conversation with God going on. Like, surely this is the one. Look how big and strong he looks. Oh, he's a natural leader. And God says, nope, that's not the one. So Samuel keeps saying to Jesse, do you have another son? And he passes. Seven sons go by. God rejects all of them. So Samuel's getting confused. And he turns to Jesse and he says, do you have any more sons? He's confident that God told him to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king to replace Saul. He hasn't seen him yet. And that's when God reminded Samuel of something. And he said, look, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Right into the central core of our being, the substance of who we really are. Not who we want people to believe we are, but who God knows we are. And Samuel says to Jesse, do you have another son? He says, yes, I've got a a little pipsqueak song out tending sheep. Go get him. He brings him. He's the one. He's the one that God tells Samuel to anoint. Why? Because he could see his heart. Do you remember what David's testimony was at the end of his life? What, What God said about David at the end of his life? That he was a man after God's own heart. When God looked at David, he looked right into his heart and he could see who he really was. I want you to stop for just a minute and be at least a little bit moved, if you can muster it, by the reality of the fact that God is looking into the deepest recesses of your heart right now. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I am very thankful... Even though on Sunday morning I'm in pretty good form, considering other days of the week, I'm very thankful that my heart isn't direct wired to the system here through the projector and thrown up on the screen. How about you? What's going on in your heart right now? This morning, as we return to the Sermon on the Mount, and I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, please. We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount, this great section where Jesus sits down on the side of the mountain, and there he communicates at length with his disciples and a gathered crowd. And the first part of the Sermon on the Mount begins with this introduction that we know as the Beatitudes. Some people call them the beautiful attitudes because they are just a marvelous characteristics of who God's people should be and what God's people should be. Let's read them, verse 2. And Jesus opened his mouth, chapter 5 of Matthew, and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And here's our text for today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. This is quite a passage of scripture. You remember that we've defined blessed. It it comes from a a word, a Bible word that can be translated into English, very happy. But that's a little bit trite and it misses somewhat the, what we would understand happy. This idea of being blessed is, is being in a right position with God so that you are favored by Him or you are under His favor so that regardless of external circumstances, you have a joy and a peace and a happiness that you know you are the person God wants you to be. You're blessed. You are under the favor of God because you are aligning with His will for your life. You are aligning with the mind of God. Christians would be happier if they line up and are under the favor of God. And you know what it is to be Stepping in your, in your own strength and to be outside of the will of God or to be wrestling with God or to be quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. And you know you're not happy. You don't have that sense of blessing on your life. Blessed. Real recall that these have somewhat of a progression to them. This idea of being poor in spirit is where it starts. Why? Because only humble people come to the cross. How are you happy? How are you blessed if you're poor in spirit? And remember that idea had the idea of being hunkered down as though you were a poor beggar with nothing to offer anyone and only to receive the favor of those who might bestow a grace upon you. The so poor in spirit that I hunker down and I come to the cross... You're blessed because that's where the favor of God begins. Proud people don't come to the cross. Proud people can handle it. But Jesus looks at this audience and remember that fringing the outskirts of the crowd are the Pharisees. And of all people, the Pharisees thought they had to act together. Of all people, the Pharisees thought that they could handle it. They were proud, not humble. And some of this teaching is directed at the Pharisees as well. You kind of pick up on that idea, even today in our verse 5-8. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And, and when we're hunkered down spiritually before the Lord, and then we see our sin before a holy God, you can't help but mourn over that sin. Oh man, I can't believe how dirty and sinful I've been. But I'm blessed because I'm going to receive a comfort that only comes from Christ. That leads to a spiritual meekness, a humility as well. You'll inherit the earth. God has a plan and it's not unfolded completely. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst then for righteousness. You will be satisfied. And when we recognize how much mercy we've received at the cross, then in turn we give mercy to others and show mercy. And today we're at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is an interesting concept. The idea of being able to see God. I'd like to suggest, number one in our sermon today, that this is is really the ultimate priority for the believer. This is the ultimate priority, number one, for us. To be able to see God. I don't know if you know the name Fanny Crosby. I use this story regularly at funerals of our saints different times. I have through the years Fanny Crosby 
um, was born in 1820. And uh, she was uh, born blind, and she, she um, was without sight all of her life, but she wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hymns, poems that were put to music, and our hymnal is full of them. All kinds of hymns, hymns that you would know, and if you've been around church very long, hymns like, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, Blessed Assurance, Rescue the Perishing, Saved by Grace. Hundreds and hundreds of hymns. There's a hymn that Fanny Crosby wrote that is entitled, My Savior First of All. My Savior First of All. Stanza two of that hymn goes like this. Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his blessed face. And the luster of his kindly beaming eye. How my full heart will praise him for the mercy, love, and grace that prepare for me a mansion in the sky. Did you catch how she began? This is a blind hymn writer writing, Oh, the soul-thrilling rapture when I view his blessed face. Fanny Crosby often wrote hymns about seeing Jesus and getting to heaven. One day, a minister that she knew said to her, Fanny, I think it is a great pity that the master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, did not give you sight. Her rebuke came quickly, the story goes. Do you know, Fanny said, that if at birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be born blind? Why? The surprised clergyman asked, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. I think she's got an argument there. It just might be worth being without sight all your life. Just so when you step across the threshold of heaven, the first face you ever see would be that of Jesus But you know, according to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and I take these Beatitudes, as well as the rest of the teaching, to be relevant for that day. Relevant for today. It's not all just something we're looking forward to, but that if if we have a pure heart, we shall see God. So there is, in a couple different ways, a sense that we can see God. Obviously, we're looking forward to the day, like Fanny, when we're going to breathe our last breath, and we're going to enter the realm of the presence of our Savior and see Him. Now, the Bible does say, some are thinking, I didn't think we could see God. No one can look at God and not be consumed. The evidence of Scripture is that, that God the Father is is an unseen spirit, but He represents Himself for our eyes in Christ, that we will see Jesus. And the writers of the New Testament talked about that, about fixing our eyes on Jesus, seeing Jesus. Jesus, as He teaches here, says, you can see God. What greater priority could there be in life than that of seeing God? Obviously, we want to see God for all of eternity. We want to be in heaven, yes. But I think that Jesus is teaching about a spiritual reality that is to be present in our lives today where we see God or we see Jesus in our everyday life. Now, I'm not talking about like the lady who fried a tortilla and she saw the face of Jesus on the tortilla, so they opened a shrine. I see Jesus! That's a true story, by the way. 
You ever been around people that don't see God? They don't know God. They don't see God. They don't see Him in creation. They don't believe that He exists. And then you're with someone who knows that God exists. They see God everywhere they look. They see God in creation. The red butter coming out. It's beautiful time. Do you see God or do you just see stuff? Do you see God in the, in the complexity of creation? Do you see God's hand over the course of human history? Do you see God in your life? Do you see God working His plan in your life? Can you turn around and look back and say, I see where God was. He was right there. I see it. It's right there. Proud people, they don't see this. They have their act together. Humble people who have mourned over their sin and have come to the cross and have come to Jesus recognize that they need now to have this pure heart that God can give us so that we can see him. Otherwise, we fill our hearts with all kinds of things. Jesus is going to talk later in this passage about how dark our eye is if if what's within is darkness. We don't see him. But how great the light is then to be able to see. This is a spiritual reality. Do you see God's love and compassion in your life? Do you see God at work in the lives of other people, meeting their needs, answering prayer? Do you see the heart of God and feel the heart of God and know that God is walking with you? I think that there's really no greater priority in the morning when we wake up than to see God today. Let's see what God's going to do. Let's see where we see God at work today. Let's see God. Yes, when I die, I want to see God. And I want to see him more than just a minute. Revelation 20.20 tells us that there will be this great gathering before the great white throne and people there will be pulled out of present day Hades or hell. And if their name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will see Christ on the great white throne long enough for the books to be open and for it to be proven to them in their pride and in their arrogance and in their rejection of God and in their self-reliance. As the books are opened, it will all make sense to them. They will see their sinfulness in the eyes of a holy God. Their knee will bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then he will say, but depart from me, I never knew you. It has to be one of the most overwhelming passages in all of the Bible. That people will have this hearing before their great king on the great white throne. And there for a moment they will see God. And then they will be forever removed from his presence. That's pretty overwhelming. But I think more what Jesus is talking about this passage is that in our daily lives, that we who mourn have been to the cross, that we live with a purity of life so that we see God and the screen isn't cluttered and the filter's not clogged and we're not seeing God. You know, when you don't see God, your life gets overwhelming. When you don't see God, you're trying to figure out and solve all your own problems. The ultimate priority, number one for us, is to see God. But we need to stop right now because I'm concerned in our audience today that we don't understand um, the greatest prerogative here of seeing God. Notice in the verse, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Alright, so if we want to see God, the ultimate priority, then the prerequisite is a pure heart. So the first thing I want to do is I want to take just a minute here, or I want to kind of put a parenthesis in our message, and I want to take a minute, and I want to make sure that everyone in the room understands that you don't have a pure heart automatically. 
You can't muster up a pure heart on your own. And the reason is, number two, is because of the problem of depravity. The problem of depravity. We don't need to belabor this point, but I do want to do a little bit of a quick search of Scripture. This concept of the depravity of the heart of man is laced throughout Scripture. What we're talking about here, depravity, means a darkness, a deadness. It means it's something that is unacceptable in the eyes of God. It is a sinful heart that will automatically turn away from God. We see this way back in the beginning, and if you feel like it, you can do a study with me um, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 5. Only the people who don't get a bad attitude about turning in their Bibles should do this with me. The others should listen. Okay? You should listen and take it in. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And this is when the, when the Lord is going to flood the earth. He sees the wickedness of mankind. The earth is populated. Man has turned away from God. And notice the bent. Notice the trajectory of a man's heart. Speaking of humanity in general. The Lord, verse 5, Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought, every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Man did not live with a consideration of God. Now, I suspect that people who lived during that day who were only evil all the time, as described by God, got up in the morning and watered their horses and fed their dog. They might have even held hands and brought a rose home to their wife. But The idea here is that the general trend and trajectory of all of humanity was that they were in the muck and the mire of sin and that the earth was characterized by evil and sinfulness. Look at chapter 8 of this same section. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah and he says, I will never ever destroy the earth again by water. And he makes this covenant. And look at verse 21, right in the middle. God says... I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, we are born and we grow up with evil hearts. It's what makes the news. It's what made the news Friday morning when a 16-year-old kid stabs his girlfriend because she doesn't want to cooperate and go into the prom and kills her. How does that happen? And you say, well, I could never do that. Listen, you need to understand that in all people with depraved hearts, in your, in your position of depravity, you can do any sin, any day, any time. You just haven't been set up in the right circumstances. All people are capable of doing all sin. And any sin. It doesn't mean that all people will do all sin. It means that... Our depravity doesn't mean that we will do every sin there is to do in the eyes of God. Depravity means that all of us will sin and that all of us are capable of doing any sin. There's a couple more verses we'll look at quickly. Look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Now you say, oh good, Pastor Van, that's an easy one. I can find that right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Look at the first three verses. It begins in verse 1 by saying that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. 
They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven, verse 2, on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3 says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Listen, we have a problem, and the problem is depravity. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says that every intention and bent of our heart is wickedness all the time. And it's evil all the time. Left to ourselves, we will sin. Left to ourselves in long enough, we will sin a lot. But God doesn't leave us alone in our sinfulness. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 5, let me remind you what we're arguing here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you can see God. But to see God, he says, you have to have a pure heart. If the ultimate priority of the Christian would be to be able to see God, have eyes that see God, and the prerequisite to see God is a pure heart, then we must deal with the the issue of our depravity or we can't have a pure heart. So depravity really matters, or how can we have a pure heart? So at a foundational level, we've got to clear up our depravity problem, or we'll never know how to live a pure life in God's presence and see God. Well, praise the Lord, He did something for us to smash the matter of depravity. One section of many that we can look at that proves this to us is Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. Let me read it quickly, point out a couple of things, and we'll move on. For while we were still weak, okay, Paul is writing about people who are depraved. While we were still weak, that means we had no strength in which to help ourselves. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's those who are under depravity or depraved people. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, verse 7. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. You know, once in a while, a guy will run off the curb and push a lady in her baby buggy out from in front of the bus and the bus runs him over and he gives his life for the baby and the mom. Or a buddy in a foxhole will grab a hand grenade and curl up on it and take it and it will destroy his life, but it saves his buddies who are in the foxhole. Occasionally, occasionally, for a righteous cause, somebody will give their lives for others. Verse 8, but here's the contrast between a guy who's trying to do good and God. But God shows his love for us that while we were still stinking, dirty, rotten sinners. You saw that in there, right? That's what depravity means. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, and there's another one of those church words, reconciliation. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you have a problem. The problem is depravity. You're a, sin. You're a sinner. Your heart is dirty. Your heart is darkened. 
Every intention of your heart is evil all the time, in essence, in the eyes of a holy God. Your only bent and your only trend is going to be away from God, ultimately. But while we were still in our depravity and still sinners, God loved the world so much, the world of depraved people who are dirty, rotten sinners, who are cursing Him and spitting on Him, and who even put His Son on the cross. He sent Jesus to take the sins of all the world upon Himself and and provide a mechanism, a means for us to get rid of our depravity. In this passage in Romans 5, it says that two things happen when you come to the cross. God loved us, sent Jesus to the cross, and I come when I'm ready to be broken in spirit and to mourn over my sin. No cool dude who's got his act together, ever comes to the cross, he will mock the cross. In fact, to most people out there, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Okay? But when you recognize your sinfulness and God begins to convict you and you come to the cross and you break down before the Lord, then by faith alone, nothing that you can do on your own, you can't earn it, you can't pay for it, you can do nothing. You can only by God's grace have eyes that are open to recognize your depraved heart and that Jesus came and died in your place because you deserve death because of the sinful depravity of your heart. And, and Jesus died in your place. And so by faith, no works... You accepted Christ as your Savior. This music stand's going to kill me. This, by faith, you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your sin is forgiven. And Paul just explained to us in Romans 5 two things. You were then justified by His blood. What does that mean? It means that when by faith, I accepted what Jesus did at the cross for me as complete, as finished. I am a sinner. I dump out my sins. Jesus takes them and dies for them. Jesus gives me His righteousness. His, his perfect record of keeping the law is now mine That the moment I believe that to be true and accept that as done for me, that God justifies me through the blood of Christ. That means He declares me to be righteous. That means that He erases my depravity. He erases my depravity. I have a residual effect of it, but I no longer am condemnable for my depravity. Jesus has come and interrupted my depravity and given me a righteousness that is not my own, so therefore God is not going to condemn me to hell for my own sin. And I have been declared righteous by the judge, holy judge, God. That's what it means to be justified. The second thing it says that it happened is that we were reconciled through Him. We received this completed work of reconciliation. In the passage it says that we were enemies with God. We shake our fist at God. We were far away from God. Reconciliation means we have now come together and made a peace track, a peace treaty. So justification positions me in righteousness. His cross also reconciles me as a dirty sinner before him. And so now I have a heart that is clean before God. I no longer am condemned in the sight of God because of a dirty heart. All right? The ultimate priority to see God, the prerequisite for that, is a pure heart. The problem with a pure heart is the issue of depravity. Let's very quickly turn to Psalms, shall we? And let's wrap up in the few minutes we have by thinking a little bit more practically, okay, on an everyday basis than Christian, average everyday church-going Joe. How are you living with a pure heart before God? Okay, so 
what this work at the cross in my salvation did is gives me a heart once and for all that is forgiven, a clean heart so that I, when I die and breathe my last, I can enter the gates of heaven on no merit of my own, but I'm identified with Christ. But I think what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is something there in the context as well, that this is to be lived out in the immediate present tense. This is for now living. You can have a pure heart so that you can see God in a new, fresh way. Let's go to Psalm 51. We're going to stick in the Psalms, and we are close to being done. I want you to recognize that in Psalm 51, it was written by David... And it was written after David got right with God after about a year of being far from God to the degree that he murdered his neighbor, slept with his wife, got her pregnant, and ended up marrying her. That baby died. Her name was Bathsheba. David was the king in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he got his heart really hard. He got to thinking that he was his own man and he became proud and puffed up and he looked down on his neighbor's wife and he wanted her and he forgot that he was wide open before the eyes of the Lord, keeping watch on the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. But then he was confronted by God's man Samuel, excuse me, by his prophet Nathan at this time. And he sits down and he does what David does best. He writes a song about his... Spiritual condition. Look at Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now the first thing we have to have to have a pure heart is to have a clean heart. You can't have a pure heart if you don't have a clean heart. Pastor Van, you're a little redundant with your words. Okay? My point is that if my end goal is a pure heart, then I've got to clean up what I have i got to clean up the junk. That's what David is talking about here. Father, clean up the junk and give me back my pure heart. Some years ago, there was a reading. It's very powerful. It was called, My Heart, Christ's Home. It was probably written back in the 40s or the 50s. And... Um, It pictures a guy in his house, and there's a knock on the door, and lo and behold, it's a guest. The guest turns out to be Jesus. You know the feeling, I think, unexpected company and things aren't quite presentable, and so you're kind of like trying to direct them to this room instead of this room, and you're trying to signal to your husband, go clean up up the bathroom, put the toilet seat down, get my... And you're trying to manipulate. And that's kind of the feeling you get with this reading. You see, Jesus comes in and he wants to take a tour of the guy's home. And he ends up rearranging the guy's house. And the guy's kind of scurrying around ahead of Jesus, grabbing magazines and tucking them underneath other magazines in the living room and running to the other room and rearranging things and getting some bottles and some glasses and hiding them in a cabinet. And Jesus is coming through and seeing. And he he makes suggestions to rearrange his house and finally gets the guy's house all tidied up for him. Then Jesus wants to do something else. He wants to go upstairs. 
No, the guy, the guy keeps, no, no, we don't, we've seen the house. Well, they go upstairs and they look things over and the way it kind of unfolds is there at the top of the stairs, there's a closet and in the closet up on the shelf, there's a strong box. And you see, as Jesus has looked over the whole house, he's rearranging things. He just keeps pushing and pushing and progressing. And he finally makes the guy open the closet door and, and he makes him get the strong box down and open that thing up and empty it out. See, that's what, that's what it means to have a clean heart. It doesn't mean to just rearrange the living room and the family room. It means you've got to go way back to the back den closet underneath all the junk and get out the little strong box and open it up and empty it out and get rid of the junk. Because we're all really good at having treasures in our heart, treasures of sinful things, treasures of things that are outside the will of God, things that are our little, our little favorite area. David said, God, would you create in me a clean heart? Get rid of the junk. The little box on the shelf, empty it out. A pure heart, that heart will see God. Look at verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The second kind of heart we need to have a pure heart. First is a clean heart. Got to clean it up. The second thing is we need a broken heart. And this fits in well with the Beatitudes where the blessed are those who are broken in spirit. A broken heart. You see, usually we won't clean up our heart until we have a broken heart because if sin's not bothering us, then we don't do anything about it. I cut a lot of wood and I care about my chainsaw. And I have a, I have a wooden-handled round brush that I keep in my chainsaw case. Every time I gas and oil it, I grab that brush and I brush off all the sawdust from around my ports. And every time I do it, I think to myself, I would say, almost without exception, Vannard, you probably care more about keeping dirt out of this saw than you do your own heart. Brushing that dirt off, I really care but how careless we can be. Because why? Because we don't have a broken heart. We're not broken over sin. We are not impressed with the sinfulness of sin. We think sin's not so bad. You want to see God? Pure heart. One more verse, and then we will go home. Psalm 24. And I want to show you this verse because I also, some of you who like to dig a little bit deeper in the Word, will be interested to know, and if you have a study Bible, it might even say it in there, that many Bible students believe that the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly verse 8, this pure in heart shall see God verse, is that Jesus, when he was teaching, had Psalm 24 in his mind. Surely Jesus knew Psalm 24. He probably could have quoted it. Look at verse 3. Psalm 24, verse 3, David asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that is a holy person. Holiness means without sin. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord 
and righteousness from the God of his salvation. See the progression? It's backwards here in verse 5. You will receive a blessing from the Lord if you have a pure heart. Verse 4. Blessed is he who is pure in heart. For blessed blessing, you will have a pure heart. You will see God. Many Bible students believe that's exactly the text that Jesus had in mind as he was unfolding his teaching. This is a whole heart. By that I mean a heart of integrity. Integrity means all of one thing, not corrupted. If you have integrity, it means you're not divided. It is a unified unit. If an I-beam has integrity, it means it doesn't have any weak spots in it. It doesn't have any rust on it. It's all good all the way through. Psalm 86.11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, the NIV says. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. We've got to have a clean heart. We've got to clean up. We've got to get this lockbox off the shelf. Get the, get the trash out of the life. We have to have a broken heart, be poor in spirit over our sinfulness. And we need to have a whole heart, a heart of integrity. You see, notice in Psalm 24, verse 4, the examples that he gives of a person with clean hands and a pure heart is someone who does not do what is false and does not swear, does not do deceit. That's integrity. They have a whole heart. Listen, we live in a world that is incredibly anti-pure heart. We live in in a time where most of us have accessible to us almost 24-7 all kinds of instruments that are more than willing to bring corruption into our heart at any time, at any place. I'm not saying that it's innately evil, all of the trinkets of of the modern day system. No different than a twenty two rifle can be used for a wonderful thing of shooting a groundhog. Or it can be used inappropriately and shoot your neighbor. It's the same thing with an iPad or an iPod or a smartphone or a computer or anything else that we're bombarded with daily. My point is that I would challenge... Nearly any generation that has ever lived since Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount, where it is more important and more appropriate for us to clean up our hearts, get the filter out and shake it off and vacuum it out and clean up the heart so that we can say, I have a pure heart. Yes, positionally pure, depravity is covered, but this daily discipline of a pure heart how we need God's grace that he would help us clean up our hearts so that we would see him. Because his eyes in his incredible microscope are looking right into the core of our being. We can't fool him. We can't trick him. We can't hide from him. It's wide open. Let's bow in prayer. Before I close out, we sing a hymn and go home. Maybe we need to think for a minute about what we're going to do about that one closet in that little box in the corner of the closet. We've done a pretty good job of cleaning up most of our life, given a good bit of our heart over to a good cleaning. 
But there's a little dish of rot that for some reason we really like to keep there. You say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Clean me out, Lord. Lord, give me a broken spirit about my own sinfulness. Father, I want to see you. I want to see Jesus. I want to see your hand at work in my life. Give me a pure heart so that we might see you. Father, would you give us the strength to be honest with ourselves? Would you, through your Holy Spirit, bring conviction of sin? Would you search us out with your bright spotlight? Bring conviction that we would have pure hearts. Live holy lives before you that we might see you clearly. In Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen.